0: One with all the Buddhas, one with all the Dharmas, one with all the Sanghas. Very happy to be one with this one, both at the monastery and all over over the country, actually. This is the uh, Cultivating the Empty Field session, July 2020, the fifth full talk couple more poems by Michael McClure. Study of self peels off the known self. Body and mind drop away from the upright tripod. Leaf by leaf, the tree brushing the deck strips to its dark trunk. And slender branches. Next, there will be pussy willows in a canyon at the edge of the ocean. Gray fir blossoms, the size of a thumb, gather cold points of wave mist. The parade goes on with red wagons and steam calliopes pulling carts with screens showing movies. I am the cruel victor, the hero, the victim, the monster. Sometimes there is a slippage of patterns forming myths as thin as knife blades through muscle bundles. Now it all gives way to largeness that I recognize for the first time. Largeness, magnanimous mind, big mind, spacious awareness, Buddha nature, true self, all of these words that point to what is most, most intimate to us. And imagine or picture yourself picture yourself with self-obsession. And defensiveness and hurriedness reduced to the point that other beings utterly filled your mind, utterly filled your heart. Picture yourself with anxiety so reduced that you inhabited the body very soft. The belly rising and falling, easy. Tension, the exception. The pleasure of aliveness, available. The pleasure of the heart beating. Skin, wakeful with sensation. The feet earth-rooted, step-by-step. Connected. And not anxiety-free from avoiding the world and its demands, but... Picture yourself anxiety free by navigating instant by instant. Future fear fantasies worn thin, trusting your heart's capacity to respond from goodness. Trusting your heart's capacity and inclination to respond from goodness. Micro and macro aggressions exhausted. Animated by love. So a basic principle, observable, I think in so many domains of life, that is an important pillar of faith. Frankly, of of logic in, in Dharma practice. And that is, the more you do something, the more you are likely to do it. So Actions become patterns. And patterns become habit. Becoming second nature. But still remaining patterns. Still remaining tendencies. Sometimes so thickly woven that choice, power, or agency over those actions seems a fiction, a fantasy, but not. So we can think of, uh, for example, the body, body postures, and you can have a, a postural habit for decades, and then through the practice of yoga, you can undo that. can be untrained. Uh, A dysfunctional but so long present belief system can be exposed, examined, clarified, seen through, and let go. Somebody who um, really touches and inspires me, a kind of hero to me, is Daryl Davis. And Daryl Davis is a black man who basically, with an open heart, And a lot of courage has made friends with innumerable Klansmen in the KKK. And because they are so touched by his humanity and because he embodies the opposite of everything they think, something like 200 of them have given up their robes. Daryl Davis said, ignorance breeds fear. If you don't keep that fear in check, that fear will breed hatred. If you don't keep hatred in check, it will breed destruction. So even the most thickly woven and confused mind states can be dispensed with, can be let go, can be seen through. So the more we do something, the more likely we are to do it getting granular here want the moment by moment living of our days do something a little less one day a little less likely the next so wakefulness empowers agency chosen Roshi likes to say awareness awareness brings choice Wakefulness empowers agency. And spaciousness is perspective on actions of body, speech, and mind. Spaciousness, the absence of finality in who we are. It may be thickly woven. It may be thickly woven, but it's still woven. Spaciousness, the absence of finality in how we show up sometimes spaciousness is talked about as potential the very fact that something new can happen and come about spaciousness so spaciousness and wakefulness and intention in a sense that's our that's our recipe That's our recipe. That's that's our practice. Dogen Zenji says, Invariably, Zazen, sitting meditation, is becoming Buddha with intention. Intending spaciousness, wakefulness. One with that spaciousness, wakefulness, as we intend it. Invariably, zazen is becoming Buddha with intention. Bit, bit by bit, Buddhas. Bit by bit, Buddhas. Cultivating this. Letting wither that. And so, I don't underestimate like the daily ways in which my mind goes astray and how those accumulate into the pattern of a pessimistic mood or how those daily mind slipping away from my agency becomes dissonance in a relationship becomes a neglect of what and who i love so bit by bit cultivating this letting wither that Seeing this differently, seeing this through. That's the, the, the daily, the granular work of bit-by-bit of bit Buddha. And can we become someone else? I don't think so. What a terrible desire, anyway, to want to be somebody else. Does actually anybody want to be somebody else? Don't we want to be what we are with 100% acceptance? So can we become someone else? I don't think so. Can we see qualities and recognize how we wish to grow? Of course. Of course. What catches our attention has caught our attention for a reason. So a related question. Are we on the path to becoming better versions of ourselves? And that may be your motivation. That's a beautiful motivation. But that's not the ultimate point. It seems to be a side effect. When we say better, who can say what's, what's better? We can say, I now cause less harm. You can say, now I'm more skillful. You can say, now I see more clearly. Who can say what's better? I could say, my stinginess stings, and that stinging speaks its own nature. The version of me ten years ago more ignorant isn't worse He was who he was, an expression of Buddha at that time, but evolving, and yet the resentments and the ghosts and all that's been shed from my shoulders, I move more light. We move more light and it feels good. Is it better? At the very least, I like it better, and maybe others do. Suzuki Roshi made an interesting interesting statement that uh, I find curious, inviting. He says, There's not much difference between someone who's enlightened and someone who practices devotedly. There's not much difference between somebody who has fully turned over the delusion of being a separate self and operating from fearful ego and somebody who is really immersed and on top of their practice. Maybe one way we can understand what he's saying. A moment of practice is a moment of agency, a moment of access to our whole range of response, whatever that range is for where we're at. From one vantage point, there is so little we can do about others' minds, hearts, and actions. There's so little we can do. We can set an example. We can create policy. We can educate. But there's so little we can do about minds, hearts, and actions of others. And from another vantage point, we just aren't looking closely or long enough to witness the way we impact our world, the people in it. We don't have the confidence of how much we are a field of influence. Think of Daryl Davis. Who would have thought he could talk people out just by touching hearts of their bigotry? So day by day of practice, all the many instances of coming back into relation with direct reality. Coming back into our bodies, the direct reality of how those are showing up, the direct reality of the situation before us, direct reality of what our state of mind is. Day by day, many instances of practice of dissolving thoughts that we know to be diluted. Dissolving the thoughts that we know to be diluted because we know that the mind is not a, an a-causal zone we are transmitting. Day by day, the day by day orienting our hearts to openness, to warmth. Because for all I can say about how that might touch somebody else, I, I, I suffer my closed heart. So all of this uh, gains power. Agency is gained. And it's guided by the, f- the intention to be a field of benefaction. Guided by the intention, spaciousness, agency, and Intention. If the intention isn't conscious, for example, to be a field of benefaction, some other intention that is unconscious will animate us. Here's another uh, Dogen Zenji quote. Interesting. He says Moment by moment, a thought appears and disappears without abiding. evident to us. Moment by moment a body appears and disappears without abiding. So wakefulness knows a a self that is process. Process. More accurate, we could say wakefulness knows only process, so self is a concept that's not even uh, necessary. It's a convention rather than an experienced reality. Moment by moment, a thought appears and disappears without abiding. Moment by moment, a feeling, a perception appears and disappears without abiding. We testify to this in our Zazen. It's not some esoteric truth. Like the, all the elements that I take to be me, rightly so, seems pretty clear appearing and disappearing continuously but with patterns. Moment by moment, a thought and body appear and disappear and then Dogen says, yet the power of practice always matures. Yet the power of practice always matures. And how, how will it mature? It's a beautiful thing that we don't yet know what we don't know. We don't yet know what we don't know. We can't know what we don't know. We can be told about what we don't know, but it's unknown until it's known. It's a beautiful thing that we can't yet see the lens with which we see. We may get some clues by the way the world responds to us and what comes forward. But we can't see the lens with which we see. When we find ourselves looking later with broader and more inclusive eyes, then we can see how we saw. But that's why vision is hindsight is 2020. And this is not... A bad thing, I'm celebrating this because this is the quality, this is the presence of mystery. How this is going to unfold, I don't know. But the felt the feeling of potential, the unseen, to be in relationship that is a certain vibrance regained. The loss of mystery is a deep loss. The other side, the, the, the sense that everything is going to unfold like I think it is, and is just repeating itself day after day, is not only uh, a sad attitude, but it's simply not true. Dogen says the power of practice always matures. And just in in continuing, in continuing because of the logic of cause and effect, we're going to get more familiar with the quality of the open dimension of awareness. We, we, We are familiarizing with ourselves with it every time we sit. We can get more familiar and mature capacity to be wakeful and to be really hip about what's going on in our minds. We mature into a wizened relationship to our inner life. We know our triggers. We know our buttons. We can hold space for our weaknesses. So bit by bit, we are Buddha's deepening into ourselves, bit by bit, the dependable principle of cause and effect, intention, action, consequence. And so we're right to have conscious, we're right to have confidence in that, but the feeling tone of our existence our experience of the world how and what we will see as things unfold we don't know we don't know and so to lean lean into that that not knowing the restoration of the feeling tone of mystery mystery with confidence that this is a good direction to walk so have confidence in what you're investing your your time in our hearts and the depth we're cultivating it may end at least for think for who we think we are and it may not Bodies appear to end, but we have the minds of those long gone within us. It's not so hard to hear or see how lives live on within each of us, within our societies. So I have confidence in the intelligence of what you're investing your time in with practice. Specifically, your formal sitting, lying, or walking practice. The elements of transformation, it seems to me, are most available there. Something about the agreement to relative stillness. Sitting in the the heat of what arises. Staying steady in our looking. Sharpening the quality of wakefulness. have confidence in your formal practice. And some would say and have said for centuries that as far as happiness goes, your dharma practice is the best bang for the buck. Your dharma practice is the best bang for the buck. An old teacher said, if people pursued awakening with the same intensity they chased after lovers, they'd be liberated without fail. Just think about if you could have all that energy back from those lost loves and those young romances. And instead have been doing retreat. I don't know if you'd want that. I don't know if you'd want to take that back, but People pursued awakening with the same intensity they chased lovers. They'd be liberated without fail. So this brings me to a principle I want to voice for myself to hear, and maybe of, of some benefit to you. With the, with the Zen teachings, they often assume that we have a foundation in in Buddhism. They, they they assume we have a foundation in the basic outlook of contemplative practice, and maybe we don't, or maybe I have some of that, and I tend to tend to forget it or uh, drift away from it. So, what I want to give voice to is is some foundational spiritual logic, kind of like Enlightenment One Hundred and One. So the wisdom teachings invite us to look into the cycle of desire in our lives and the world. Now will sometimes say that the whole thing is just the endless wheel of desire. Of wanting, getting, no longer wanting what was gotten, wanting, getting, no longer wanting what was gotten, ad infinitum So they invite us to really look closely at this cycle and how it how it is alive within us Now one of the first ways that you hear this common way is that material possessions don't lead to happiness Okay I Think we can observe that to some degree it can be held kind of dogmatically think about my drum set and the hundreds of hours of joy I've had from my drum set and I go well it's probably true that four more drum sets won't increase my happiness but to say that material possessions aren't part of of well-being and happiness is a little bit of an extreme but those four more drum sets actually might decrease my happiness cause me more problems Anyways, the cycle of desire, the first observation of wisdom traditions, is that the cycle of desire is basically uninterrupted. Or let's say it's only, it's only briefly interrupted. That want is the conscious or unconscious continual mantra of our minds. Maybe you could say it's the mantra of our bodies. basically uninterrupted. The second observation is that the desire, we can see it as attention. T-E-N-S-I-O-N. Desire is a tension. It's actually something that in some ways is uncomfortable. It's tricky because we don't tend to have a perspective on desire until we're on the outside of it. From a place of of desirelessness or the gap in desire, we can see what the cycle of desire is a little bit more clearly. But if it renews so quickly, this kind of thing is hard to really see enough to be impacted by. So desire is a kind of tension. Now... With desire and anticipation, we feel juice, don't we? We feel purpose. We feel an orientation, a reason for being. We feel substantiated in going for that. Whatever it may be, the whole range of, of that's. The desire, it, it's, it's juicy we're not entirely foolish for being involved in this there's some there's some real just life energy in that obviously my identity is even shaped by the nature of what i go for so i'm a foodie or i'm an athlete or i'm a meditator i'm a bodhisattva i'm a record collector i become defined by what i desire So desire is juicy, but actually it is a kind of a burden. And how do we know that? Well, because we are seeking to get rid of it. We would like to be free of that desire. I want to extinguish it. That's intrinsic to the game of desire. Now, of course, we want to extinguish hunger and sickness and uh, fatigue. But think of... The last time you had a package coming in the mail, and the anticipation of that, kind of the juice of knowing something's going to arrive, the anticipation is exciting. But I also want that to go away. I want the anticipation to go go away because I want the thing to arrive. At least temporarily, I want the anticipation to go away. So then that brings us to the the next observation, or in this case, inquiry. In the cycle of desire, where does the pleasure lie? Where does the pleasure lie? Now, as Zen practitioners, we're, we're training ourselves to be alive in the process of life. Alive in the process of life. I can remember times in my life where I really lived for points of, of the fulfillment of desire spread apart. And what I mean was, I lived for breakfast and then I lived for lunch. And everything in between was pretty difficult to bear, and I couldn't wait to get it over with. But those meals were my two points of, of desire fulfillment and the, the raison d'etre of my existence. So our practice, yes, we are, we are learning to be alive in the very process of life. But sometimes, if you're anything like me, we do get enchanted and captivated and confused by objects of desire. So it's good to look at it. Where does the pleasure lie? Is it in the wanting itself? Is it in the anticipation Do we desire desire because of how it, how it brings us alive and gives us orientation and purpose and all the different levels, ways that desire animates us? Does the pleasure of desire lie in the contact and enjoyment of the object? Is that, is that where, it, where it is? Could be. Could be that we're clear about what we like and we know the satisfaction we get from it. Could it be that the pleasure of desire lies in the extinguishing of the desire, the release of the tension itself. That is, it's not the ab- the, the object, actually, but for a little while, the desire falls away. And that tension and that compulsion and that leaning out of the present moment to get something to improve my state or my condition or my self esteem, that drops away for a little while. But then the next desire rises up to take its place. It's like a bottomless, a bottomless well. So we look at the Cycle of desire, um, because we don't want to be—we don't want to be fooled. We want to see our lives clearly. We want to make choices that actually um, maximize the benefit of the energy we put out. One response to this cycle of desire is to do what it takes to end it. And whether that's what really happens when people are on the path that they profess is to end desire, I don't know. I don't know what the consequence of that orientation is. But one response is to really to cut off the thoughts that fool us about the objects of satisfaction and really see them clearly and let that desire flow into other channels to not renew the cycle by seeing it for what it is. In this case, a kind of chase. There's a certain aliveness that we can touch in the absence of desires, tension, and captivation. It's almost like the energy that is often flowing out towards. Those objects, sometimes they're objects in our mind or they're things actually we're interacting with, that same life force, because it's not going outward, it just fills our being and there's a vibrancy. Kind of juice of life here and now. It doesn't need an object, the juice of life itself. The energy of life. Some... uh, some of you may have encountered people who live a conservative monastic life. And if you think about what they have given up or what they've, the lifestyle they've chosen to live, sometimes you might recoil at how could they possibly have given up all the good stuff. But when you meet these people, some of them are the most joyous, bright human beings you will ever see. And there's no sex, drugs, or rock and roll going on. Most joyous people you'll ever see. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a profound reflection. You know, one of the reasons that the Buddha took up their path was seeing somebody. Seeing, seeing a renunciate, a deep contemplative and a and state of mind that was reflected. So do we touch this in sitting? Does this aliveness in the absence of enacting the cycle of desire? I think so. Just being. The quality of contentment. But it's tricky. If you try to make that contentment, that just being, a mode of desire, that's desire. That's desire just changing its face. It might be more sophisticated. It's a good argument. But essentially, we exchange the desire for stimulus and excitement for the desire for peace. It's also argued that the desire for stimulus and excitement has more negative consequence treads harder on the earth it's an argument argument with with solid evidence are there times when desire has had you forfeit your dignity or worse in order to to fulfill some kind of hunger, so i can find uh, i can find examples in my life for sure so desiring to not desire wanting others to not desire wanting to reduce desire desiring to increase desire desiring to desire what's really worth desiring Desiring to know what that would be. Desiring to let others know what they should be desiring. Desiring them to know what it is they desire really anyway. So we can enlarge around this. We can encompass this reality of desire without having to Take a stance on it, one way or the other. A conscious life involves looking at our way of being compassionately. That's that's all this kind of reflection and investigation is. It has nothing to do with flagellating ourselves and trying to become a good, a good spiritual boy or girl. It has nothing to do with that. To look at our way of being compassionately and observing as clearly as we can muster and reckoning with the contradictions that different desires in us bring. Now maybe maybe this is idiosyncratic and I'm the only one or one of the few people who have internal contradictions. But I have a lot of uh, co- contradictory desires from the outside. In a sense, thinking that people should be only one-dimensional and lack complexity and consistent in their outlooks and aspirations is thinking there should be an unchanging self. It's, it's uh, not appreciating how nuanced we are, how fluid we are. Whenever there's a should be, it basically means I desire it to be. I desire it to be. It should be this way or that way. So, our practice can hold so called contradictions of wanting to be content and wanting to be enlivened, excited. They're not in opposition. I'm smart, okay. I'm foolish, okay. I'm both smart and foolish, okay. I'm not smart or foolish, okay. I want peacefulness, yes. I want excitement, yes. I don't want to be peaceful, I don't want to be excited. When we adhere to any point of view, we, we limit. When we insist on being one way or another, we we limit. And yet we have our intention for practice. And yet we have this wakefulness, this agency to see what is skillful and what is unskillful. And we find in our sitting that we have so much more equanimity than than we thought. That we have we have a source of imperturbability. In a sense, equanimity is unlimited for our true nature. And the different ways we're seen are okay. Being right is not desired. Being right is okay. Being blamed is not desired. Being blamed is okay. And it can hold the parts of us screaming for vindication. Definition. A position to substantiate ourselves and look out at the world with certainty. And it enables us to take a stand, to do what we think is the best thing we can do at the moment. And we're not held to it. Because day after day, the power of practice matures. So I believe the Dharma is the best bang for the buck. And I'll take a stand there. And I want to encourage you to really have have confidence in this investment you're making in your mind stream. Of all the many uh, beautiful and meaningful experiences and goals and things in the world, the energy put into practice is wise. It's a wise investment, shifting more and more to a non-dependence on circumstance for our wholeness, our happiness, and our self-respect. We're shifting more and more into a wisdom about how do we bring those things about in a way for us that is actually workable so I think we, we help each other we remind each other of the value of this practice and I, I thank you for, for helping me we also read the teachings from the, the luminaries the celebrated uh, masters to help us imagine where we're going have an image of the territory we're invited deeper into. So I want to end with uh, some more from Hongzhi. And This one is called Perfect Wandering. The eye, E-Y-E, the eye that engages the fluctuations And the body that voyages over the world are open and spirited, still and illuminating, and appear extraordinary among the 10,000 forms. They cannot be buried in the earth's dust, dust being a term for what desire can do to the mind. They cannot be buried in the earth's dust and cannot be bundled in the cocoon of past conditioning. The moon traverses the sky, the clouds depart the valley, reflecting without mind, operating without self, becoming radiant and benevolent. This is how everything is perfect, cast off fully and functioning freely. So imagine the moments in your life when you really are unstuck on yourself, when when. Concerns are very light in your mind, and you're just so available. And you're so able to, to flow responsibly. He continues This is called the body emerging from inside the gate. Still, this must be enacted while you continue the family business. Emptiness is your seat, stillness is your shelter. Subtly maintained without being existent, it does not involve conditioning. Genuinely illuminating without being non-existent, it does not fall into quantification. Wakefulness is not a thing. It's not some some object we're going to put on a shelf. And yet, it serves us so deeply. Its function is unmistakable. Not a thing, but the most precious. Alone and splendid within the circle, profoundly revolving beyond all measure, perfect wandering is guided by the spirits. I love that. Perfect wandering is guided by the spirits. What does he mean? Is there a sense that we're so open or we're quiet enough that Wisdom of our ancestors can flow through and, and help us navigate. Is it the land itself? Is it the situation itself? Perfect wandering is guided by the spirits. Hungzir continues, the great square is without corners. Here you exert energy and naturally without impediment here you exert energy and naturally without impediments comprehend all the shiftings and accept your function so thank you for your your practice this week we still have hours to go please take heart have confidence in what's coming up as the unfolding of your path. And please have confidence that it will unfold. It will open, invariably. Because that's the nature of wakefulness. Thank you.